Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Welcome back to Book Shambles. After a couple of weeks off, we are back. Thank you to everyone who came to any of our shows up in Edinburgh, whether that was one of Robin Solo's shows or the Barry Crimmins Benefit or, of course, the Book Shambles live shows, which is what we are starting to release on the podcast this week. The first one this week is with uh, Kerry Pritchard-McLean and George Egg. But before we get to that, we have got a lot of news to get through. Firstly, this Saturday, we are going to be at the London Podcast Festival at 7pm at King's Place. Robin and Josie back co-hosting tickets for that. It is $14.50. You can get them from the London Podcast Festival section of the King's Place website. We're also going to be doing Book Shambles live at the Ilkley Literature Festival at uh, the start of October and then on October 22, we're going to be at the Manchester Science Festival doing Book Shambles Live as well. Sophie Scott is going to be co-hosting that one with Robin. Tickets for both of those you'll find on uh, the events listings on the Cosmic Shambles website. And if you've been following us on Twitter or social media, you will have seen that this week we have announced and launched our all-new blog network. Unfortunately, The Guardian have closed down their science blog network. So we were in the process of setting up our own blog network anyway. So most of the top science writers from The Guardian are now part of the Cosmic Shambles family. So that is Helen Chersky and... John Butterworth and Dean Burnett and Brenna Hassett and Susie Gage and Peter Etchells and Jenny Roan and more we're going to be announcing soon as well. Plus, we've got some new blogs from uh, Michael Legg and Ginny Smith and Chris Hadfield uh, coming to the site very soon as well. So go to cosmicshambles.com slash blogs to check that out. And that blog network, like Book Shambles, like everything we do, is purely funded by your generous support on Patreon and also uh, by buying a ticket and coming to one of our live shows. So thank you very much for that support. We really appreciate it. Honestly, we couldn't do any of this without your support. So if you'd like to pledge, if you're not already, you can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles to get involved with that. Or if you can't pledge, uh, then just spreading the word about the podcast, the blogs, everything else on your Facebook and your social media and all that really helps as well. Give a five-star review on iTunes as well. That really helps us get some visibility for the podcast especially. So now on to this week's episode with Robin, Kiri and George talking about serial killing and cookery. Oh, and I should mention actually, uh, before this episode starts... That where we recorded these, the the cave, the literal cave venue recorded these in Edinburgh, we had a few issues with the venue sound. So uh, some of the sound on uh, this episode is not too bad, actually, but on some of the episodes, the sound is 
a little bit iffy and also we had zero internet connection down there as well so where usually I would be uh, feeding forgotten names of books and authors to Robin on stage uh, that wasn't an option this time around so if he's forgotten anything in the middle of the episode don't worry go to the uh, cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles page find the right episode and uh, the full reading lists are on there enjoy oh we started brilliant uh <laughs> hello uh welcome to uh book shambles that is coming from uh we, we i say all this stuff because it's it's been recorded uh book shambles that's coming from uh edinburgh fringe festival and uh josie long has uh it's very rudely uh, rejected coming to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival instead just so she can hang around with her new baby that she loves. <laughs> I can't believe she's really let me down. Uh, so Josie's not here this year and uh, uh, we are joined though today by uh, Kerry pritchard McLean and George Egg and this is a wonderful one because George Egg is going to be talking about cookery and Kerry's going to be talking about serial killing and then there's a fantastic <laughs> shaded area of a Venn diagram of cannibalism. <laughs> so it's, it's all it's, going to be fine. It, it, it's knives, isn't it? It's, yeah. It's, it's knives is where the two... Uh, yeah. Knives and seasoning for some <laughs> people as well. That's it's a little bit of both. Um, I want to start, Kerry, with your... Because your, your, your podcast has been really huge and it is this... Your interest, well, in fact, I mean, you, you wrote a story for yeah, uh, one of the Dead Funny books, which was a, a collection of horror stories by, by people like Kiri and Josie and uh, uh, Phil Jupiter and Stuart Lee and Alan Moore and many others. Um, when did you start to get uh, a fascination with the kind of, you know, this strange and visceral world? It's, it was books, actually. I was obsessed with uh, horror books as a kid, and I used to have books on tape as well, So, which I know is not very cultured, but I am a scumbag. Um, so I no, was but horror books are always really good ones. It's like you get Basil Rathbone or David McCallum yeah. or people like that. Yeah, so I remember I used to listen to on loop um, Hound of the Baskervilles, which I found terrifying, um, and uh, Dracula, Frankenstein, and then the Alfred Hitchcock had the three investigator stories, and there was one called The Secret of Terror Castle. And uh, the second side, halfway through, was chewed up, so I never know how it ended. <laughs> I was like, Ugh! and it was like really tense up until then, so I didn't ever have the relief for finding out what that noise was. Um, but yeah, I became really into it, and it used to get to the point where I, could, I would scare myself to sleep. And my parents, well, like my mum is quite interested in sort of like horror stuff, so there were always books around the house that were sort of like you know, like about cryptozoology or horror or monsters or, you know, folklore and things like that. And I just was so into it. And then there's, and then you have a gateway drug, which was for me was Ed Gein um, because I loved horror films. And then I heard that Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Psycho were, I think there's another one as well, were both inspired by Ed Gein. Deranged. Is it that one or not deranged? No, there's another one, I think. I can't remember what it's called now. Um, and yeah, so I was like, well, who's this person it's inspired by? And although technically he's not a serial killer, I know you all know that. Um, mm -hmm. He's just a murderer. <laughs> um, just. <laughs> um, I started reading up on him and then that was it. I became so fascinated. And I, before I changed to do um, a degree in contemporary theatre practice, uh, I was doing a BSc in psychology. So I was absolutely fascinated by the brain and what happens to it and how we'll start with the same sort of, you know, machinery, but how do some people go on to do these 
bizarre things, but it all started with books. All started. See, I wonder whether one of the shows that I'm doing up here at the moment is all about my love of horror when I was eight years old, and I've got all the pan book of horrors and encyclopedia of witchcraft and oh, demonology, which always has these wonderful pictures of late middle-aged women kind of just standing in the middle of a pentagram, <laughs> and, and is in many ways I think a much better introduction to to nudity because it really yeah they, all those books had nudity in them, but yeah. they were never like kind of fraud. They were kind of like oh that's what happens eventually. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's and, not salacious when they're touching your belly button, is it? <laughs> no, and it's, there's one picture of a, 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 a woman, uh, a topless woman, and next to her is this kind of flabby man just with a piece of string tied around his flabby waist. And that, it's not a look. And, uh, <laughs> like Gokwan nipping in the waist. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, what was it, th those things, I wonder sometimes if, as a child, one of the loves of horror, and for you trying to work out why I loved horror so much, there's various things, but one is, if you're not one of the alpha children, this idea of a lot of the world is very scary and school is kind of, you know, if you're not in with the right gang, it can be scary. But you have control somehow. These terribly scary... And I just wondered if you in any way think, apart from the fact they were around your house, is there anything where you feel, ah, yeah, I can see why I was drawn to that? I think... Uh, so I grew up on a farm in on Wales and it's quite bleak, but, like, beautiful, but bleak. So my brothers are much older than me, so they moved out when I was, like... How old would I be? Like, nine years old. So I went from being in a noisy house full of boys who, like, were into Dungeons and Dragons and Iron Maiden and things, so all that kind of background, to being an only child with 50 acres uh, that backed onto a nature reserve. So it was just very, that bleak kind of hand of the basketballs again. There was always like a low fog that would hang over the marsh. So it was just kind of a scary, kind of eerie place to be. And I think I just identified. And then growing up on a farm, you see some horrific things. Like, so my parents used to do like very basic surgery on the animals, and I just kind of sit and watch. Which is, I mean, this is sounding like I'm a serial killer now. But, you know, you'd see, like, I remember that there's asps, I think. No, not asps. There's um, adders on the marshes on the farm. Sometimes the sheep would get bitten by them. And I'd see my mum, like, uh, like cutting open the abscesses and, like, irrigating the wounds. And, like, really full-on stuff. So you get this weird kind of, like medical detachment to horror weird stuff and you can't go into school well i used to do when i started stand up i'd do sort of like observational stuff about being on a farm thinking everyone had the same experiences like oh you know when you're pulling a lamb out of a <laughs> sheep and i was like no no idea mate <laughs> so i thought that these were kind of shared experiences and then you realize that they're not and people aren't sort of interested in that they i was never interested in dolls or anything like that i'd be out doing weird stuff and I remember this one thing I found a very, I'm not very good with death at all, oddly. I, I deal very badly with it. And um, even like animals dying, I, I can't very cope with it. And I remember finding this dead sparrow in the barn and I was like, oh, it's just going to die. And it's like, no one cares about it. That's why I get sad about like people being forgotten. And I had this like little <laughs> sliding door thing and that had like kept fridge magnets in. So I put one in there and then I put it across. And I was like, oh, it'll be fine there. And it'll probably come back to life. I just convinced myself that it'll be just needed a rest. Um, and then I remember going back to it and it, weeks later and it was obviously unrecognizable. I also put a dead mouse in my room in another little box because I was like, it just needs to go on the radiator to sort of heat it up. It's obviously just cold. Um, and obviously that was just cooking. And my <laughs> mum was like, what is that smell? <laughs> so I think I've inadvertently been making my own creepy little tableaus of horror and not being able to talk about it because people would be like, you're weird because they lived in normal houses and played piano. So, yeah, I, I just think it was some like weird like escapism, I think. Does that explain why I'm weird? Yeah. Not entirely. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very good start for our first session. <laughs> um. <laughs>
George, what is the best way of cooking a mouse? Um, I think probably a radiator is, is <laughs> nice, slow, you know, slow cooking it. Yeah, in, roast. A, in a cardboard box, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, what what were the what were your your books that showed uh, you? Uh, John Wyndham. I just I was oh. so into John Wyndham and uh, Chocky. Funnily enough, you know, I mean, you know, I confess it was the TV kids TV program that got me into Chocky, and then read that, and then off the back of that, read all his other books, and just found those absolutely fascinating. And um, the tripods as well, the John Christopher trilogy, yeah. which again was a TV series that that drew me into that and sadly they only made the first two books and then ran out of money and they just there was just this really flat ending i don't know if you watched that did you watch that it's that like series? the uh, the flat ending to uh, the adaptation of dennis wheatley's to the devil a daughter which christopher lee was all very it's, i don't know if anyone here seen to the devil a daughter it's 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 the last it's the last Hammer horror film really until they've been slightly reincarnated mm. in 1975 and it's got uh, a great cast Anthony Valentine's in it uh, Richard Widmark uh, Natasha Kinski and Christopher Lee as uh, this priest and all the way through there's a tremendous sense of the demonic and then right at the end there's Christopher Lee and he's bringing forth Satan and then Richard Widmark goes how can I stop this I'll just chuck a stone at him <laughs> and he just and he throws a st and then it ends. And you go, you, you've been That's building like up to Satan and the people are caught far out of nowhere <laughs> and suddenly going, I should have chucked a stone in ages ago. And it's just well, that, that was the, with the, the second book of, uh, of the trilogy, the Tripods trilogy, they, they go back to the, the White Mountains where all the base is and, and they're supposed to then in the third book they all, they build these hot air balloons and go and destroy these alien cities and, and at the end of the second series on BBC they just go back and it's smouldering sort of coming out of the, the mountains and they just literally the last line is something like um, oh it's all been for nothing and that's it <laughs> and I'm just going come oh on oh god does that sum the BBC up <laughs> well I think it just ran out of money but a thing that I learned recently because it would make such a great uh, feature film was that I think I'm not sure which studio maybe Warner Brothers bought the rights to it but it was one of those cases where they bought the rights to it just purely so they could bury it because oh. it was too similar to War of the Worlds, because it's big tripod, you know, aliens, um, just to stop it being made, which is so weird, isn't it? That. So when did you move to? So you, to, are you still into kind of science fiction things, or? Uh, no, I mean, I've, I've got to confess, I've, I've, I've got really bad reading habits. Mm. I've read all the John Wyndham books and the Tripods trilogy, <laughs> not much else. And then that I mean, stopped. I, yeah. I, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm one of these. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of a sort of late night Amazon uh, binges and then, you know, after a bottle of wine and then, then a parcel will come in the post and my wife will go, have you been buying more books again? <laughs> and I'll flick through and there's lots of, you know, cookery books or food books, uh, um, but not so much uh, uh, sort of uh, novels or anything like that. It's a cool thing, isn't it, when, you, when, you, when you're drunk and then you order things, and then you've forgotten. So it is really giving cool. yourself presence, isn't it? And oh, yeah. Really no, it's quite it. exciting. It's just, yeah. I always thought there'd be a nice bit of material about sort of the contemporary one-night stand of someone waking up in the morning all bleary-eyed and hearing a ping and then looking over at their computer and going, oh, no, I've bought a double bass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kerry, just going back to the... Uh, um, it's in terms of things like serial killers, who are the authors that you read? Because someone that I enjoyed, say, about 20 years ago, and I haven't kept up with it, but Brian Masters... Who yes. wrote Killing for Company? Yeah, he's brilliant. And did he write Happy Like Murder? The Fred and Rose that, one. That was uh, um, Gordon uh, Byrne. Yes, who, Gordon yeah. Byrne. Yeah. And there's another. I think uh, does Dr. David Wilson write stuff as well? So yeah, they're really great. I hate. So one of the things I struggle with of true crime is I don't like anything salacious. I think a lot of it is anti-women, and a lot of it is victim blaming. 
So I like things that are a bit more forensic and even-handed. So I'm just, I would say I'm bored of women dying with their tits out. So I want something that's less, you know, that because they nearly all go and it was the mother. They blame the mother for everything. And that's not always the case. It's not, an, you know, there's loads of people with bad mums that don't go on to do anything. And, you know, it's, it's easy to conflate these things. So, yeah, he's the Kenny for Company is great. It's long and it is, I mean, it does so much into his childhood. And there's quite a lot of speculation. Um, but it's, it's great. And it is a, they're heavy reads because if you really get into it and into people's childhoods, that's the bit I'm interested in, the formative bits. The crimes, I'm not as like, not as interested in. It's how you get to that point that I find fascinating. So yeah, Gordon Byrne, that is an amazing, amazing book. It's really, it's a hard read if you haven't read it though. It's because obviously the Fred and Rose West, West crimes are, they're relentlessly bleak childhoods and then relentlessly bleak crimes that were, you know, obviously they got away with it for far too long. Um, so it can be tough. Like I, when we do the podcast, we do as much research as we can because there are quite a lot of podcasts out there who will get the names wrong of victims and things. And I think that's part of your job is to respect those people. They had the name, call them by the right name. And so we try and get everything as factual as we can be. Um but it could be really heavy going. Like I remember, so for Fred and Rose, we did a three-parter because there was so much to talk about. Um, we did it over Christmas as well, which was a massive mistake. <laughs> Tis the season. Um, and I remember by the end of it, Rachel was like, I just want these out of my life. You know, it really, it does take its toll to just... The thing that I'm always fascinated by, like the reoccurring, everyone will have a different thing, but the only reoccurring theme with serial killers is a failing of the authorities. And I think every serial killer is fascinating because they will tell you something about the time that they lived in. So like the Yorkshire Ripper, he could get away with it for as many as he did because until he killed a little girl on her way home from school, he was killing sex workers and people were like, and? They took it as an occupational hazard. So that tells us about the world that we live in, that we see, or at that time, saw sex workers as disposable, as people not to worry about when they went missing, as people not to be believed when they came forward. But when a, a girl working home from school was killed, well, that is an innocent, and we need to do something about that. So you find it in different you know, parts of America where um, they'll just kill loads and loads of people of colour because the police are not, they don't consider that a crime. Taking out the trash is what uh, frequently gets referred to. Same homeless people are targets. Um, Colin Island, who's known as the gay slave, was in the 90s in London. He used to go to the Royal Boxall Tavern and he killed gay guys. And they didn't catch him for ages because the police kept saying, oh, it's sex games gone wrong. And they, because it was the gay community, they didn't care. And in fact, they couldn't get them to speak to the, they would go to the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, they thought that's where he was picking them up. And they were like, of course we're not going to speak to you because two weeks ago you raided here, covered in rubber outfits, saying we don't want to get AIDS. So of course we're not going to speak to you. So I just think that whenever something comes to pass, whenever there is a serial killer, it tells you something about the world that they were living on or you are living in or the area. And I, that's what I'm kind of interested in. It tells us a lot about the history of stuff. So yeah, just like, so the uh, Killing for Company about Dennis Nielsen, he grew up in Scotland in a really bleak, bleak area. I had this kind of weird upbringing, you know, by the coast, a very hard life, this 
father was a fisherman and would go out for stretches and stretches of time. He had a really good relationship with his grandfather who died when he was young. He saw the body and he remembered having like this big formative shift there. But he's also a bullshitter. So he lied about rescuing a boy from the sea and and like yeah from being drowned a, a guy rescued him and which is just a fabrication so he was sort of he had this this other life that he used to live that was sort of more romantic and wistful and you know was all about deaths and saviors and things which is sort of what he used to act out on his on his victims so yeah I, killing for company if you can get through it is a, is a great one the um, I was trying to think now of how to link that into cookery books. Yeah. So, uh, well, that's now, perfect. Uh, Felicia's Nine journey, dicks in a kettle. Uh, Felicia's journey is uh, uh, about someone who uh, is a murderer whose mother was a uh, TV cook. Go, George. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, the, I don't know. Have you seen the film? I can't remember who wrote the wrote the the, the, the book. It's based on it's a wonderful film with uh, uh, Bob Hoskins, and it's. Uh, the, uh, by the way, two books I would mention just when you're talking about that. Uh, you, I'm sure you've read it, As, As If by Blake Morrison, yeah. which is uh, a, a, an incredibly humane book about what happened around the Bulger trial. Mm. And the other one is, is uh, this is a different thing, not serial killing, but again about how people can end up committing terrible crimes is Erwin James's book. I don't know if you know him, Erwin James, Irredeemable. He's now... Uh, um, he, he, since he, he now is the editor of Inside Times, which is the prison newspaper, and he writes for the Guardian and stuff, and he's, he's no longer in prison. But it's an incredible his autobiography of what led to the point where life meant nothing. Wow. Uh, and it's yeah, it's very very interesting. Um, so anyway, um, pineapples, George. So when you're <laughs> cooking with them, but yeah, no, I, 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 I'm just going to make because there's no point in trying to make a segue. So yes, um, right. when you are cooking liver. Uh, mm -hmm. the, no, uh, when did you become excited by cookery and cookery books? So I know you're not just, it's not just the cooking itself. And if it, you don't know George's show, DIY Chef, it's amazing. He cooks things in fucking trouser presses, which is annoying because they've stopped having them in hotel rooms. Well, that's now. why. So that's I can't, yeah. Well, just, well the, the, my first show, I was cooking with a trouser press. So the first show was based in a hotel room, cooking with irons and trouser presses and so on. So the new show is cooking in a shed. Mm -hmm. Because they don't have trouser presses in hotels anymore. <laughs> uh, so that's with power tools. Um, I, uh, obviously. Um, I think my interest in food and cooking has run, you know, in parallel with my interest in performing for decades. And it was only, I mean, I've got Robin to thank for me putting the two together. Because um, for a few years, uh, I, I started actually cooking in hotel rooms. Just purely for fun, a kind of... Uh, a sort of mischievous adrenaline release after doing a stand-up gig and I thought there's irons in there and kettles and so on let's just see what I can do and it was also partly because I didn't want to spend money on room service mm -hmm. and you know just various reasons for doing it um, and did some cooking and made some little films of those and then I was doing Robin's Nine Lessons and Carols for Godless People shows the Christmas sort of science variety night um, and it was 2013 and I said to you can I do all 10? Because there were 10 that year. And you said, yes, if you come up with something new, because I've been doing bits of my sort of, you know, not conventional stand-up, because I use props and so on, but non-food-based stuff. Um, and so I wrote a 10-minute uh, cooking on irons between this trivet made of Gideon Bibles uh, <laughs> sketch. Um, and it, it worked there. And from that, some people said, look, why aren't you doing Edinburgh and this sort of thing? And then it sort of snowballed from there. But what's interesting is, since doing it, I've realised that actually the 
the sort of spark that that ignited that interest in cooking and theatre at the same time actually happened years and years ago, about as I say, about twenty years ago, when I first well before I even started, and um, I went to see the circus Archaos, the French uh, anarchic crazy um, circus, no animals. It was this. Absurd show. I think they, they came to Edinburgh. Amazing a few image years. of a man swallowing a pin, swallowing a an fish. enormous fish. Yeah, so yeah. If you the look back, at the, it would have been about 87, 86, 87. It was, maybe, yeah, yeah, late 80s, early yeah. 90s, certainly. Um, and I saw them up here. I came to see them up here, made friends with some of the people there, went backstage. Uh, then when they went to London, I got a job with them cooking crepes at the circus. Um, and then became friends with a guy called Ian Smith, who, do you know, do you remember Ian Smith? He was the compare at the Zap Club in uh, oh, Brighton yeah, in the, yeah. the late 80s. And he was the ringmaster at Archaos. And then when I started doing, I was doing street entertaining then. And we, um, I was involved in a show called The Feast that was at the Albany Theatre in Deptford, which was this mad sort of variety show where the, it was hosted by a load of uh, people dressed up as chefs um, uh, called the irascible, tattoo-faced, food-bearing nomads. <laughs> and... In the day, during the day, the, the cast of the show, or the, the ones playing the chefs and me, because my wife was one of the people playing the chefs and I was friends with Ian Smith and the rest of them, we would cook a meal in the kitchen at the theatre and then during the show, in the interval, that meal would be fed to the audience. And so it's actually, and I didn't even clock that until after I'd started doing the show 20 years later, realising, actually, I'm doing the same thing there. I'm doing this thing where I'm cooking and feeding the audience and trying to create this multi-sensory bit of performance, really. So, I mean, it is about food, but it's about trying to sort of engage people's smell and taste and sight. Well, it's and a beautiful thing. When you have poached a fish in a kettle <laughs> and you ask if anyone's going to taste it, and generally the audience kind of go, oh, and then one big person will go, all right, then. Then the moment they go, ooh, then everyone goes, oh, yes, 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 well, yes. And it's I like mean, that's the, that's, yeah. it is, the food goes like that. And in fact... Um, when I did my first Edinburgh show four years ago and I was doing the hotel cooking one, I do these, these pancakes at the end and, um, and I was doing the show and I, I dropped the egg and it fell on the floor and it was the only one I had and so I said, well, look, I've got to do the cooking. So I scraped it off the floor and I said, look, don't eat this. I'll just do it as a demonstration. Cooked it, food got carried out, all gone. Yeah. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> So you, in terms of, you, you make these lovely recipe cards as well, which, yeah. you, uh, which you're available to show. And, uh, and that's one of the things that my favourite recipe books are, the 1960s, the 1970s, the colour plate technology means that everything is a little bit more vivid than it should be. In fact, <laughs> in the show that I'm, one of the shows I'm doing at the moment, for no reason whatsoever, I merely just have a slide of a pineapple that's made out of liver pate. And it looks, <laughs> it's this incredible thing that, you know, for that generation and, you know, people like the Galloping Gourmet, the war had meant that the, oh we couldn't have cream and sugar and then we or, or certainly George and, and me our, our generation were brought up terribly because our, our, our parents would go yeah this is a piece of gammon covered in cream and brown sugar and pineapple it's like oh god and but those pictures the, these oh, grotesque use of yeah. prawns oh no I've got, I've got yeah I've got some old cookbooks and they are they're so unappetising I mean they're sort of oversaturated but at the same time sort of really sort of faded and insipid looking yes. and and they look like they've been there for about eight hours and sort of varnished. And yeah, <laughs> just really incredible. It's amazing how food photography has changed, I think. Um, just everything from sort of depth of field. Now it's all about really shallow depth of field where you've got, you know, a sesame seed and the edge of a noodle in focus and everything else is blurring off into the distance and you're all going, oh, it's delicious. My favourite one at the moment is I've got Vincent Price's cookbook. 
which is just, you know, because he was a, a gourmet as well as being a... Oh, wow, a, I didn't uh, know that. Was you know, I didn't know that. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you his, uh, his, his lemon chicken recipe later on if you want. <laughs> the, um, so, Kira, I just wanted, because you, your eyes seem to like, they're, they're talking about those, those, those colour plates. Yeah, I've got, like, so I've got, my friend got me one of my favourite presents is a book called uh, Microwave Meals for One. And it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like orange and brown cover and then all the food and it looks fucking disgusting. <laughs> it's like that bedsit cookie, you know, that, that book that's really yeah. But it's just like, every, and it's like, it's all just like microwave smoke kippers with in, inexplicably lime jelly on the side. And, you know, just like, <laughs> it all just looks like someone's panicking and using everything that's going out of mm. date. And everything's like this weird, you're right, it's too bright, but it's also like peas aren't meant to be that grey. Yes, there's Yeah, there's a greyness to stuff. And it's just horrible. And I, I grew up like, yeah, we used to like bake. That was what we do, like bake like sweets. And my my mum had all these, like obviously handed down from my nine and my nana. These cookbooks from like fuck knows when. And yeah, just everything in it looked awful. And yeah, there was just so much going on in like the crockery and stuff. So yeah, I just like it's making me salivate, but not in a good way. <laughs> the bit you get before you're sick. <laughs> but I love all that stuff. It's brilliant. And I find like now because I just. So I stop, I don't eat, uh, I'm, I'm a vegan guy, it's very virtuous. And I just feel like all that, like, I, I haven't, I've yet to find a book, a cookbook that appeals to me in that vein. Because they're either like tediously pious and there's bits about them doing yoga. Or like, they're trying to be cool and say fuck a lot in it. And I'm like, neither of those are for me really. I'll tell you what, they, I got one recently called Veganize It. Which actually is really good. It's kind of, the approach is, is vegans want to eat junk food. And it's basically, you know, pizzas and burgers and all that sort of thing. But, but nice, you know, like making, um, uh, there's lots of liquid smoke in it and smoked paprika to get those sort of bacon-y right. flavours going on. And uh, sort of slow-baked thin slices of aubergine to make essentially ve vegan bacon. Um, and they work really well. I mean, actually, oh, yeah, you do that really, really slow cook it in the oven and then that with, some, with all the other bits and a sandwich. And it's like a BLT, but... Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, no, I'd <laughs> recommend that. Because it's great. I mean, the vegetarian ones, things like the Moosewood Cookery Book, I don't know if you've ever seen that. Yeah, they were I great, absolutely but you're right. love those. That was one of the ones that I, I went through all my cookbooks. I don't know if you saw on Instagram. And I, no. I was going through them all trying to work out what to talk about here. And yeah, the Moosewood and the Enchanted Broccoli Forest, they're just such beautiful books. They're all, do you know them? They're, I know the Moose one, yeah. And they're all uh, hand, I, I don't know if it's a hand-drawn font, but I think they're actually all hand-written. Um, and they're just yeah, just lovely objects. No who photographs. In terms of authors, who do you who are who are the the, the, the chefs uh, of of the last? I mean, as, as far back as you want, actually, who really inspire you, and you just think, ah, oh, this was this was truly inventive. This was something different. Um, I've got to confess, as as toe curlingly middle class as he is, I do like Nigel Slater enormously. Um, we thought you were going to say Jamie Oliver and walk out. Yeah. <laughs> Not today of all no, days. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's an issue, isn't it? The Jamie Oliver thing. I don't know how I it feel It might about be. That. I haven't bothered reading about it. Life's finite. Anyway. <laughs> I really I feel like that about a lot of things. I've, I see something trending. I went, maybe someone's been a dick. Maybe they haven't. But you know what? I've got to try and understand the universe before I start working with Brian Cox again. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be furious if I haven't come up with an answer for his dark energy problem. Um, I tell you who I love. There is, uh, there's a guy, he's not really a chef. I mean, he does have recipes in his books, but he's called John Wright. And uh, he, um, if you watch any of the River Cottage programs, he's the forager bloke, sort of aging hippie guy with a 
wide-brimmed hat and he's, he's just an absolute expert on foraging. But he writes so entertainingly and so warmly. Um, there's a brilliant... I've got one of his books. Can I read a yeah, little excerpt? Yeah, of course. Because um, there's a bit that I just love in his book on uh, booze. <laughs> this is a superb book for making your own you see, that alcohol. could link quite nicely if we were doing the, the, with the serial killers with Colin Wilson, yeah. who, of course, wrote a lot about uh, murderers and serial killers and also just... Well, he wrote about everything. <laughs> he, he was, yeah. Well, this guy is, is just so funny, and there's so much in there that you just... You read it and you want to recreate it. So this is a bit about making sparkling elderflower wine. It is only possible to drink elderflower sparkly from a glass, not the floor, walls, and ceilings of the dining room, kitchen, or shed... Exploding bottles are the bane of the elderflower sparkly maker, and it is something that seems to happen to everyone. This is the best bit. I read of one winemaker who kept a dozen bottles just inside the shed. Nine exploded, leaving a hurt locker collection of three. <laughs> Since no one was prepared to approach the bottles, or indeed that end of the garden, they hit upon the rather brilliant idea of taking them out with a rifle. <laughs> yeah, that's lovely. I remember that. So I'm growing up on a farm, and like I'm... Um, I'm going to move back to a farm. And we, so growing up, we had chickens and uh, mum used to make ginger beer, you know, so you have a ginger yeah. beer plant. And I remember that twice it blew a door of the cupboard because she, yeah, it was just this stuff that was so strong. Yeah. And after we'd go haymaking, we get to have this ginger beer, but she'd be like, go outside to open it <laughs> because it used to explode. Well, I did. I made some of this elderflower champagne, as it's called. Uh, and uh, yeah, and while it was because it's bottle fermented, hence the pressure building up, and you have to have these robust glass bottles with the kind of Grosch lids. And um, so I put, hit upon the idea of I wrapped them all in towels and put them in a big, you know, sort of bag for life. Um, and they didn't go, but I thought if they do, then at least they'll be contained. Oh, that's clever, yeah. yeah. It was very nice. You, you mentioned Nigel Slater, so I presume that toast is one of your favourite kind of. Yeah, that's a great memoir, isn't it? Yeah. But I, w I wondered who else is there. You know, I was thinking about Anthony Bourdain, of course, who recently died, and, you know, his writing was, yeah, you know, was greatly revered. And, and, and uh, who, who are the people that, you know, inspire you in terms of their narrative as well about that? Because some people, the way they can write, again, it does return to that kind of visceral thing, but in a more positive way, just you really get every sensation. I mean, Elizabeth David is great, you know, going back, if you want to look at older stuff, her stuff's really... Um, inspiring and uh and 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 so uh you know ahead of its time um and uh i mean even hugh Fernie Fernie wishing i've got a great book of his uh it's just all his things that he wrote for, for newspapers just a collection and that's really good um yeah those those ones there and and dear nigel and, and so over, overall then you don't read very much it's cook cookery books and then yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm guilty, as I say, of buying loads of cookery books. I mean, uh, you know, not just cookbooks. So um, things like Cooked by Michael Pollan, which is an absolutely brilliant book just about... Oh, I just read his book about LSD. <laughs> wow, has he written yeah. one about LSD as well? Yeah. I didn't realise. I'm working backwards. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think I'm going to get there if this book works. <laughs> um, every single page, I lick my finger to turn it. <laughs> Whoa, There's another great book I read recently called Taste Matters, I think, by uh, a, a different John Prescott, but it's about the science of why we like what we like, and, uh, and there's all sorts of psychology and stuff in there, and it's, that's, that's really fascinating reading. Um, 
Because isn't this a thing about? I remember reading. I, I, I know he's now kind of been been slightly shamed. The the guy who wrote Proust was a neuroscientist, uh, Jonah Lehrer, I think. And, oh, and, I that, don't know. and there, there's that. There's meant to. Is it right that there were meant to be five tastes that occur on the tongue, yeah. around the tongue, and then it's turned out that some of that actually is. Uh, it's not true. It's not the. Uh, it's that taste. What's it called? The um, um, monosodium glutamate thing. Is umami. That? Umami. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's the that's the fifth one, wasn't it? So there was yeah. sweet, salt, bitter, and sour were the four that we thought and then umami was discovered that's and that's the, the best one, one as well that's that kind of yeah that savory back here kind of thing mm. and so that's still so there's still five i just want to check i think i think it's it's five yeah Thanks for keeping me up to date on that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, fascinating. Yeah, Proust was a neuroscientist. Such an interesting book. Some lovely thing. If you don't know, it's basically where he, uh, uh, John Lehrer writes about the fact that before sometimes science had got there, uh, in novels and in fiction, they're exploring ideas of conjecture without the actually without doing the experiments. Oh. And there's, uh, um, I want to get. I'll quickly get back to uh, the. Uh, well, we don't have to talk about killing. What do you read when you when you're I mean, because I presume that does now take up a lot of your life because of the podcast. Mm, not, n no, actually, that's because of the podcast. I don't read stuff like that if I can help it. Um, so what's the last, I don't read as much, I used to read all the time, I don't read as much. The last book I read that really had an impact on me is, uh, I want to get a name right, is it uh, Rennie Edu Lodge? The yeah. Why I'm No Longer t Talking to White People About Race, um, which is like, is amazing. I just urge everyone to read it in terms of like, I just didn't know anything about black history in Britain at all. And that you kind of think, well, they came over in the seventies and everything's been fine. Um, but just that, that history of like, I just think we all need to be really educated about how rum, to put it lightly, the empire was and how much we need to really change things structurally and be allies and push an agenda of equality across everything forward and yeah it just is that trying to get that voice that i don't hear because like and it's like my my social circle is predominantly white not not in a like it and that's the way i want it but like you know just coincidentally so that's the perspective that i don't hear and i remember that book i just raced through it i was so like yeah and i love it how she starts because i remember when i was first reading it, i was like being sort of very gentle with the ideas here and, and kind of going and obviously that doesn't mean that this this you know and just sort of like i was like yeah yeah we're, i'm on board but sort of as it progressed she was more sort of like and i use this as a positive word like militant as in like holding us to account to be like and that is how things are and i was like shit yeah it was it was a real sort of like eye-opener to for me and I, I lent it to my boyfriend and he read it as well I was like what did you think he said yeah I thought it was great he said I've really main thing is I've just really come away hating white feminists <laughs> I was like good stuff <laughs> good now you've got to go and share a bed with one <laughs> um, but yeah I, I just thought it was um it's privilege is it's all the stuff we don't see isn't it and you have to force yourself to acknowledge your own privilege and to not then let that slide you know to keep reminding yourself that you are given all kinds of platforms and to try and use it where you can to have the right conversations for the people who aren't, you know, and if you can go, I'm not the best person to do this and let someone else have that platform. So, yeah, it's been a real sort of eye opener for me. And really, yeah, big impact. 
I found it fascinating. I mean, you know, George, you and I are in the position of probably almost the top of the, of the privilege tree, really. Yeah. You know? and, and, that, and I still find it amazing. There's a lovely thing, Martin Rousen, who you probably know, a great cartoonist who's just recently done a, uh, a new cartoon version of uh, the Communist Manifesto, but he's, <laughs> he's wonderful, really. And, and he just, Toby Young, who's always whining uh, about, oh, I suppose, yet again, it's the, you know, the white man's fault, poor old us. And uh, he described him as an Oedipal car crash, which I thought was one of the most <laughs> joyous kind of, you know, the background story there. Um, George, when you, I, I presume, are we going to see a book based on these things? Because it seems that there is quite an adventure in... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I hope so. I've, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't want to say I'm writing a book, but I mean, I am writing loads of stuff down and loads of ideas. And uh, I, what I want to do is create a book that is... Uh, broad about food, but broadly about sort of repurposing and about sort of thinking outside the box in this kind of creative way. I've got I've got another book to to show you that I just oh, wanted great. to bring yeah, along yeah, just yeah, because because it it's it's another one that really inspired me with these shows. Um, and uh, it's it's oops, it's terrible for um, uh, a podcast because it's extremely visual. But it's it's called Homemade uh, Contemporary Russian Folk Artifacts, and it's a guy who went round. Uh, sort of basically very poor parts of Russia and found all these objects that had been made where uh, people had repurposed stuff. So on the cover, there is a, a, a radio aerial made out of forks. And, um, and then it's all the stories around what they've, what, you know, the, the objects. So there's a door handle made out of a, it's just a plastic handle from like a sort of milk bottle. Um, and if you read the, 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 uh, the, bits of writing with a Russian accent it, it kind of enhances them let me find one that's a, a good that's one so like my childhood my father is such like growing up on a farm and he's a mechanic as well he's such a Dell boy I remember mm. when I was in um, at school play I got cast as the fairy and everyone used to fight over this fairy costume and I got to wear the tutu and uh, there was no wonder dad was like no problem I'll make you one and he made it out of a car aerial um, so it was telescopic and then on the end he'd cut a python into the shape of a star so it was the most dangerous thing to give a five year old just like whipping that around the place but yeah it was just like what, proper whatever you can make stuff out of well, talking oh, God, dangerous, the worst I mean, homemade thing I had was uh, a friend of mine gave me uh, he made a gun out of uh, the top of a two-pin plug, which had been cut off, and uh, a, a knitting reel, little kind of uh, th a thread reel, and I didn't feel that it was big enough, and I wanted to make it into a better gun. And I went into the airing cupboard, and there was this box of kind of tubes, and uh, so uh, I got one of these tubes that I'd seen before, and I placed it on the uh, gun, and I went running around the garden until my sisters went, "No, I wouldn't have that," because I'd basically found one of my mum's tampons and was using it as a gun silencer, and. Uh, well, good. It's thinking yeah. outside the box at an early age, isn't it? This is a great one. This is a, um, a magnetic funnel that someone's made. And it's, uh, well, I'll read you what it says. What can I tell you? It's not that interesting. I read in a magazine that magnetized water is good for you. That's all. So I decided to try and make magnetized water. I had a magnet from a radio speaker and I had a funnel. So I just had to put the two things together. I put the magnet around the funnel, took some insulating tape and fixed it on. That's all. I put the funnel in a bottle and poured in the water. It was supposed to be magnetized and acquire healthy properties, but there was something wrong. I used the device for a year with no results at all. Either it didn't do something right, or maybe what they said in the magazine was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what they've made there. But What's that just, called again? Just the... It's called Homemade, and it's absolutely, brilliant. honestly, it's just brilliant. The little stories in there are just charming. 
and some of the objects are just lethal. I mean, this is, this is a, a, a Walkman adapter, and it's two battery-shaped uh, bits of wood with terminals on that then go to a, a little plug so that you can basically plug it into the mains and put the batteries in there. But, and, and even there's, there's, one that's even, there's one that's so lethal. Oh, no, I'll just try and find it because it's just ridiculous. It's, oh, yeah, it's a, a water boiler, and it's uh, a plug where they've just attached a razor blade to the positive and negative, and they just put the razor blade in the water, plug it into the mains, and boil water in their, in their student digs because the kettle was too slow. Oh, man. See, that... <laughs> that is a brilliant idea for a serial killer. Yeah. Because what you do is you place that book in the person's house, <laughs> kill them using one of those things, and then, oh, and they, they must be mucking around with this stupid <laughs> book they bought. Um, and you're, uh, you're going to be going on tour with the podcast. You're going to uh, the USA America. quite soon. When, when are you going to be yes. there? End of September, we're in America. Yeah, which is really exciting. So where can people find out about dates where you're, you're taking that? Yeah, good point. We don't have a website. Um, <laughs> um, I think it's all on. We're doing it through Live Nation. So, yeah, we're, uh, yeah everything you, could, you should be able to find there. And uh, George, what are you going to be cooking tonight? What thing you mostly because you're, you're also you've got some dates coming up, haven't you? As yeah, well. after not merely in Edinburgh, but, but, but yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm touring the show um, up until the end of the year and into early next year, uh, all over the place. I've got a website, georgeegg.com, that's got all the links to uh, to all the venues. Um, yeah. Uh, George and Kerry, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, thank you very much to Trent Burton, who uh, has produced this podcast. And, uh, and that's it. There's more uh, Edinburgh Book Shambles coming up. And thank you very much to our audience. Thank you very much for listening. We hope to see you this Saturday, September 8th at King's Place for the London Podcast Festival with Robin and Josie. And don't forget to go and check out our new blog network at cosmicshambles.com slash blog. Some of the best science writers in the world now writing exclusively for Cosmic Shambles. And that's not uh, hyperbole either. People like John Butterworth and... Uh, Susie Gage and Dean Burnett and Pete Etchells are genuinely some of the best science writers you will find anywhere. Uh, So go and check out their stuff on the Shambles website. Thanks again for listening and uh, for your support on Patreon. And we will be back with a new episode next week. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. (laughs) 